Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the third and final report into sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces was released yesterday. What recommendations did the report release and what are the implications? Speaking of, the federal liberals also tabling new firearm strategy to address issues around gun violence. We'll talk about what's going to happen if the government finally passes that legislation. And are the Ontario PCs destroying the province? Lorraine Summerfield, an author and columnist for the Hamilton Spectator, will join us to talk about her latest op-ed. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, long-awaited ruling about sexual misconduct in the Canadian military uh, was released yesterday. Uh, retired Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour says it's past time for the military to scrap the traditions and practices that perpetrate what she describes as a sexualized culture. I represented the results of her year-long investigation in Ottawa yesterday. She says it would be a mistake for the Canadian Armed Forces to think that it can fix what she called a broken system. Meaningful change will rest on the political will and the determination of civilians who oversee the Canadian Armed Forces. Still, it will not happen without the support of CAF leaders and ultimately without the goodwill of all its members who are every day entrusted with the duty to protect our country and who do so on our behalf. So uh, where do we go from here? Where does the military go from here? Uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand was also at that uh, press conference yesterday and a lot of questions to be asked here and not too many answers as of yet. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Walter Callahan. Walter is a PhD candidate in medical anthropology with the Faculty of Arts and Science at the University of Toronto. Uh, Walter, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be here again. Thanks for having well, me listen, on. Look- yeah, well, this is very, very important, and I know we've talked about this with great anticipation. Uh, by my count, Walter, this is the third uh, att- attempt at a report to address the the sexual problems and and the uh, the and ha- well, all kinds of problems going on in the Canadian military, from sexual harassment to uh, much more severe problems. Uh, why should we expect it's going to be any different this time? Just a quick correction: it's not the third. There's actually seven reports that have come out in the last five okay. years that deal with different aspects of this. Uh, something that I was hoping we could actually touch on too. Uh, yeah. So it's great that we're leading with this. Uh, should we have hope? I think we should. I think there's been enough of a sea change in the last year and a bit. The system itself, the uh, those in power, politicians, but also bureaucrats and the the actual leadership of the military with General Iyer. I think they have realized that the way of doing things as we've always done them clearly hasn't worked. And that you have report after report after report and then numerous external academics like myself pointing out these issues, some of which get included in the report, some don't. I think they finally realized that time has come for a change. And I think... As a society, we finally have come to that stage as well. There's definitely going to be a resistance. I mean, the, the 42 recommendations in the Arbor report are wide-ranging, and some of them are going to be very difficult. They fundamentally rock the foundation of what the military is. So there's going to be resistance. We have to be ready for that resistance. But myself and others, I think we have a cautious optimism especially with some of the recommendations, making it very clear that those of us who are external need to be at the table, that we can't be ignored by the powers that be within the military, that the only way we're going to solve this is by having those of us who once served but have now gone on to academia to come back and assist. Because we love what the military could be. My stressor could be. There, there were so many horror stories from when I was in myself that I did relate some of them to our board during her during her uh, review, but we there's still something about the military that still draws us back. We don't want to burn it to the ground. We want to make it better. And I think with these reviews, with the re- all the recommendations, our board reinforces that the, the recommendations from the Deschamps report that haven't been implemented, all of those also have to be issued. Includes them as recommendation number 27 and just quickly mentions all of Deschamps reports <laughs> recommendations still need to be made. So it's, but I, I, I have a cautious op. Uh, and by the way, when I said three, I was referring obviously to the Deschamps report and, and the, the Morris Fish report too, two Supreme Court, former yeah. Supreme Court justices uh, and, and their 
uh, recommendations at the time. And, and as you say, there was, I think, rather cynically, some people were saying when the Justice Arbour was being uh, asked to, to carry this out, she could just cut and paste from the other two reports because not much of that stuff ever got enacted. I, I, I got the big takeaway here, though, Walter, and I, I know you want to get into detail, as we should, about some of the other recommendations, uh, is that I, I think right near the top of the list, if not at the top, basically she said to the Canadian military, you cannot police yourself. Uh, somebody else has to do this. Yes, yes, and I, th th that was part of what uh, Justice Fish had in his report. Yeah. And it's also in reports that were put out by uh, the Ombudsman for National Defense. Even their own internal reports frequently state this, that the, the inertia that goes along with a hegemonic power system, a hierarchy like the military, makes it almost impossible for them to do all the changes internally or to police when bad things are done. You know, you look at some of the language here, and, and maybe, uh, to your point, uh, maybe we have reached the tipping point finally. I, I mean, we, I, we knew there was injustice when these other two reports came out. Uh, there was very little in the way of response or reaction from the federal government of the day. But it's, it's I guess, the the way she phrases this, the, the one, here's a line that jumped out at me, just for our listeners are aware. Uh, Justice, former Justice Arbour writes, uh, one of the dangers of the force's current operating model is the high likelihood that some of its members are more at risk of harm on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis from their comrades than they are from the enemy. Uh, I mean, it doesn't get much, much more succinct than that, does it? That basically every day these people, are, are, you know, put the uniform on, there's the risk of sexual harassment or physical harm could come to them from their, from their colleagues. I mean, that's, that's a frightening environment to be working in. It is. Unfortunately, it's the way it's always been, and that's part of the problem. And the, unfortunately, yeah, the, the, the old school guard who never really acknowledged or accepted the harm that they were causing, whereas any, any female LGBTQ, any, any member who was othered in any way knows this all too well, that the, the, the risk of harm from the people who are supposed to have your back is so great. And it's one reason why we have such a problem with retention. I just stick it out. And our board also had a, had a great line uh, in her introduction about women are here to stay and they're staying on their own terms or leaving on their own terms. It, it's very blunt. And I think that's what we needed. In, in other areas, uh, I, I managed to get my hand on the full 420 page report, which unfortunately hasn't been posted online yet for for most people to read. I think it, it it'll well. It took me three hours to read through it, and I'm I know this file inside out. So I think most people are going to take a long time trying to trying to process and read through this. But yeah, she doesn't hold punches. So it, it's it's one of the things I think having the justice who is that strong in her language. There's no there's no trying to dash around the side of this. She's made it. Her recommendations are very crystal clear. Uh, they may not be as easily understood without reading the full report on why and how she got to some of them, but they're well-grounded. They they definitely did their research on this, and it's going to be very difficult for any naysayer to try and deny the problems, much like they did with, uh, with the Deschamps report. And, and as you say, she lays it out on the line here pretty clearly. You know, she says, I know that those who live with these issues on a day-to-day -day basis are eminently capable of determining how to best proceed if they accept the general direction and changes I am proposing. She says, on the other hand, I'm equally convinced that if they do not, no amount of detailed recommendations will produce the desired result. Uh, that's pretty clear. But, you know, then we looked at, uh, at Minister Anita Anand's comments after this and saying, yeah, we're behind this 100%. Uh, but they've only committed to implementing 17 of the 48 recommendations uh, that are in this thing. <laughs> what's what's going on here? I mean, if they're behind this 100%, shouldn't they just embrace the, the entire report? Well, I, my, my understanding is they have embraced the entire report. It's now the difficulty of trying to figure out how do we actually implement some of these? Because again, some of these are rock the rock the establishment to its core. Uh, things like, well, what do we do with the Royal Military College, which was a core part of, of what uh, Arbor targeted. Mm -hmm. And and to 
make the changes, it changes the 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 feel, the structure, the the, the culture of RMC. And culture change is not easy. Uh, this is one thing that myself and others, I've, others of my colleagues have, have been pointing out that you need to know what the culture is before you can change it. And the way that the military has been doing things, trying to define culture on their own, has been flawed from the get-go. And, and our work calls that out. But until we actually know what specific things are, she gives a lot of concrete examples of things that need to change and recommendations of how to do them. But it's the implementation You've got a, a hierarchical leadership, you've got a bureaucracy, and then you've got the political will. I think the political will is actually there this time. How much buy-in and resistance comes from the bureaucratic angle or from the leadership angle? And uh, sorry, Arbor called it the, the leadership angle on it. Mm-hmm. But not everything in this report can just be done with a snap of the fingers by the politicians. Some of these things... The politicians have no ability to actually correct. Some of these things are things that can only be done internally. The politicians, like uh, Minister Anand, can definitely give the direction and give that notice of, hey, do this. But they can't force it to be done. But how, and how I think do you that's implement where the stuff like that? On, pardon? I was going to ask you, Walter, how how can you implement some of these recommendations? As you say, it needs to be done from within the system. I don't think anybody wants to see everything blown up here by any stretch of the imagination. But it, it this this clearly uh, is infected right to the highest ranks of in the Canadian military. Uh, so, so if they're not buying into this, does it fall upon the government uh, that that branch to simply say, "Well, this is what you're going to do," and if not, then you know here are your marching orders. Get out of here. Uh, I mean, they've got to be pretty succinct about this and. I mean, there was a lot of optimism. You and I talked about this at the time when Minister Anand was appointed to this this uh, role, uh, that maybe things were going to be different. And and the first indications where they were, it's just a couple of days after she uh, was sworn in that she had talked about this report and got uh, former Justice Arberta involved in situations like this. But it seems to me, at least in the initial stages, uh, the government has to step in here, Minister Anand and, and, and her staff. But how far does this go? I mean, because the accusations under the former minister would, well, this is an old boys club, not just the military, but the, uh, you know, the political arm of this that was supposed to oversee this was also an old boys club. Uh, that, that's a pretty, pretty ingrained system to try to change. In, in, well, it's not going to be a short period of time, but, you know, where do you start? Where I would start, and this has actually been a criticism that I've been seeing uh, across social media uh, within the veterans groups and the, the military groups. And that's the, this report focuses so much on, on the officers, on the senior officers. Yeah. Which it does, but it also does give moments of where we can start from scratch at the lowest level, at the recruiting stage, that even ha- having a, a probationary period where we can monitor new members and decide whether or not they actually make the cut in terms of value. We can stomp out the sexism and the racism and all the other bad things right from the get-go. An important recommendation connected to this uh, is actually recommendation number 23, which and the, the uh, 22 to 24 Uh, deal with this to some degree as well. And that's create changing how we do training at the lowest levels. One one of the biggest problems that we've had for for culture change is the people responsible for training, the way that we've done training, even at the recruit level, is no one wants that job as a trainer. If you do want that job, people question like, what kind of career are you looking at in the army if you're if you just want to be doing we've we've Put down the role of the trainers. And that has caused part of the problem because you end up with people disgruntled who are doing the training only because they absolutely have to do it for their next promotion. Uh, well, taking on a position as an instructor on a, on a course, doing that only because they won't get their next promotion unless they do actually take on a role like that. You end up with people who don't want to be doing that job. You may end up and I certainly witnessed this more than once when I was in, people who absolutely have some really 
foul ideas. And they're now in charge of training brand new recruits or people early on in their career. Those, those screwed up ideas that they have, the racism and sexism will bleed through. It will affect those that they're training. And Absolutely. this is what this is a problem that unless we change that, we're going to have the problem coming in at the very basic level. So, Walter, I gotta, so we're, we're, I gotta we're cut so it off here. Some, Right. I, I, we're just about out of time. I, I, I'm so glad you could join us today because I just somehow knew that uh, that you were going to stay up late last night and go over this thing and uh, and, and have some insight into this. Uh, this is the first of many conversations. As you say, most of us haven't even digested this yet, uh, and we're looking for some action items here too. So uh, let's let's uh, hit the pause button now, but I want to uh, get you back on the program ASAP and talk about this in greater detail, okay? Okay. Appreciate it, Walter. Thank you so much for this. Walter Callahan, of course, PhD candidate in medical anthropology and, of course, a former uh, member of the Canadian Forces. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a a horrific uh, Memorial Day weekend in the United States, of course. Uh, We all know the coverage, of course, of the disgusting uh, murder of of 19 young children, of course, in South Texas. But that wasn't the only event. There were others uh, where there was gunfire that took uh, innocent lives. And in the wake of those, and I think an outcry from a number of people on this side of the border, uh, the federal liberals are now tabling a new firearm strategy to address issues around gun violence. Now, if passed, uh, this bill would set a freeze on public, private handgun sales, uh, stricter punishments uh, for people that use altering weapons, and there's a number of different things here. Before we get into our conversation, let's get Kyle's, uh, Kyle Benning rather, from Global News to give us a report on what he heard yesterday. A bill sponsored by the public safety minister is looking to freeze private sales and transfers of revolvers and pistols. It's part of a gun crime strategy put out by the Liberals who want to restrict the number of firearms in the country. The Prime Minister noted more is also being done to prevent guns from being smuggled in from the U.S. I will say that the investments that we've already made in RCMP and CBSA at our borders uh, has resulted in double the number of illegal guns seized last year as the year before. Authorized firearm businesses would still be allowed to operate. The legislation also includes stricter sentences for gun crimes, as well as a red flag law. That would give police the ability to revoke a weapon from a person deemed to be a threat to themselves or others. Kyle Benning, Global News. Not the first time, of course, that uh, the government's tried to address something like this, uh, and uh, it's met with, shall we say, mixed success. And there's already been some pushback from uh, gun advocates about uh, this and saying it's far too restrictive. I want to bring Justin Ling into the conversation. Justin is a freelance investigative journalist uh, covering this story. And uh, Justin, first in the force, well, thank you for coming on. Great to have you with us this morning. Uh, Thanks, Bill. There's, there's always going to be pushback, and, and I know that even some of the, the critics of this legislation, proposed legislation, I guess, are simply saying this is just a knee-jerk reaction to the stories that we heard over this past weekend. Uh, but this is not a new issue. It's it's a different take on this issue. And I guess the government, this particular government anyway, Justin, is probably thinking, you know, with what we've seen in the last little while, maybe, maybe the pendulum has swung and maybe the public wants to see something like that. Are they Are they reading us properly? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's worth noting that some of the provisions in this bill were actually tabled in the last parliament uh, in legislation that was killed when the election was called. Uh, Many of the provisions were actually in the Liberal Party platform, in some cases, almost word for word. Um, The Liberals have been trying to figure out a handgun ban in this country for quite some time. You actually heard the Prime Minister talk about it yesterday, saying we tried to give the authority to the municipalities. We tried to give it to the provinces. Nobody felt like they could do it. So this is our solution now. So it, it's wrong to say that this is a you know an immediate reaction to the news from the states uh, over the last couple of weeks. That being said, I mean I, you know the timing likely is uh, you know quite auspicious. Uh, nobody wants us to be in a situation where we're responding you know rapidly to a mass shooting here in Canada, right? I think uh, the opinion of, of most reasonable people is that you should be proactive on this front, not reactive. And we have seen circumstances over the last number of years where um, firearms were used in mass shootings, in in in, in open kind of daylight shootings um, that could have been prevented. Whether that's the Quebec City mosque attack, uh, which relied on a semi-automatic rifle that the government is going to be banning next year, or whether it's shooting in Laloche, uh, a circumstance where. 
red flag laws could have seized those long guns from that household and prevented a, a school shooting that, that claimed a number of uh, innocent lives. So I, I think there is a feeling in this country that more should be done. I mean, two thirds of the country support a handgun ban. Um, two thirds of the country support more restrictions on semi-automatic rifles. So, uh, you know, it, it is the timing is, you know, not just a coincidence, but at the same time, this sort of thing has been percolating for, for quite a while. The criticism, and I, and I hear this from law enforcement agencies, I, we've talked to a number of them, of course, as you say, every time a government tries to introduce something in, in the, this vein, is that, look, at, uh, the bad guys are still going to get guns, uh, illegally, so the rules don't really mean much of anything. But what it does do is it gets... I think motivates uh, the gun owners to simply say they're coming after us. They're going to take our guns, mm. uh, and these are the you know the legitimate people. Target practice, all this sort of stuff. You've heard all these things before. So you've got that group who th- say, "Hey, we're abiding by the law, and now you're going to punish us." And you've got the bad guys who say, "Well, I can get a gun tomorrow if I want. I can get one in ten minutes if I want it." Well, so let's break down this this problem because yeah. you know there's there's some truth to that and there's some falsehoods there. I mean, on you know one hand, there's the problem of intimate partner violence, which is something the liberals I think are are targeting quite specifically with some of these background checks, some of these red flag laws. And the reality is, intimate partner violence when it involves firearms does tend to involve uh, legally acquired weapons right you know when there's a firearm in the house um the chances of intimate partner violence turning deadly increases exponentially so um improving the ways in which the government can uh you know can cancel those firearm licenses can remove those weapons from the household is pretty important and this bill does take aim at those who have have been slapped with restraining orders those who have been convicted of intimate partner violence uh those who have been convicted convicted of stalking for example so there's there's good reason to think that these provisions will prevent uh, the, the the murders of, of women um, across the country now the second piece are you know are the rare but very traumatizing mass shootings the likes of which we saw in in Quebec City or more recently in Buffalo and Texas and it's a it's a trickier problem as you, as you saw in Portopic Nova Scotia sometimes those mass shootings are committed with illegally acquired firearms that you're right this bill wouldn't significantly impact uh, but in some cases they are committed um, with legally acquired firearms, firearms that are legal here in this country, and making those firearms harder to acquire, making the magazines that carry carry fewer bullets, that will have a real impact um, when, unfortunately, something like this does happen again. And the third piece is really the, the big problem, the, the big thing that we need to solve for, which is um, gang violence, uh, organized crime violence, uh, which does overwhelmingly rely on weapons smuggled in from the U.S. We know that uh, thanks to police forces across the country thanks to studies that have been done Uh, and this bill contains relatively few provisions to tackle that um, because it is an incredibly difficult problem if if preventing smuggling was easy we would have stopped it a long time ago Um, so the critics do have point to a degree you know the 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 biggest driver of gun violence um, you know is not going to be solved with this bill but it will I think ultimately reduce the number of of, of mass shootings uh, reduce the deadliness of those mass shootings and and you know alleviate um, the the problem of this intimate partner violence um, issue and and as you say this is not exclusively an American problem and and I, I tend to disagree with those who, as, as you do, that say, well, this is just a knee-jerk reaction. It's an emotional reaction to what we saw in Texas. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, as you and I are speaking this morning, the inquiry into the, into that terrible mass murder in, in the, out in the Maritimes a couple of years ago continues. It does happen here. Mailthorpe, it happens. I mean, there, we don't talk about them maybe as much, and we have a tendency to make a big deal of it for two or three days, and then it kind of fades into the background. Uh, but it doesn't fade into the background of the families of the victims of situations like this. That's, that's right. And and we should have an emotional reaction to this. I mean, if, frankly, if you don't have an emotional reaction to the murder of 19 children with an illegally acquired firearm, then you, sh- you there's something wrong with you, I think. I mean, I think please... Um, to wait and to to slow down, um, ignore just how traumatizing and difficult 
these problems are. Now, I'm eminently sympathetic, and I, th- I think many people are, to the to the fact that uh, law-abiding gun owners are are not really the main problem here. Um, that you know their lives are already quite annoying because of the level of um, restrictions and, and the amount of bureaucracy they have to deal with um, just to have a rifle they use for hunting or to have a firearm they use for target practice or to have a shotgun they use for self-defense. Um, and I, you know, I think we should be a little bit sympathetic to that. But also, I think the concerns of those who want their children to be safe in school, who don't have to worry about their kid walking down the street and getting hit with a stray bullet, I think those concerns are frankly much more pertinent. Um, and, and we should kind of lean into the emotion of that and accept that that is the, pub, the pressing public, you know, public safety concern, not um, the convenience of, of lawful gun owners. I'm going to ask the question and I'll give you the answer because I'm getting emails about this over the last 24 hours especially. Why focus on handguns this time around? I, I, and and I, that answer seems obvious to me, but I wanted to get your perspective on it. I mean, I think the simple reality is that a ton of countries around the world that have uh, either forbidden handguns outright or made them, frankly, nearly impossible to obtain, have better outcomes, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, folks who point out that the problem is with illicit handguns are quite right. But also restricting access to even legally acquired handguns, frankly, couldn't hurt. And, you know, I don't know that there is a compelling case to be made um, that, handguns should be accessible to the general public. Um, I mean, you see rare, rare circumstances, virtually zero cases where a handgun in the house actually prevents a deadly attack. You see way more circumstances where it enables, um, like I said, intimate partner violence or, or a sudden decision to, to to commit murder. Right. So, you know, I, I think it's 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 clear from international experience and from common sense that having fewer handguns in this country is a good thing. Now, you know, I, I think it's also clear that access to hunting rifles, uh, shotguns is, is not going to be generally impeded in this country. Um, and I think that's the kind of compromise we've made. You know, this is not going to be a country where guns are banned outright. But I think, um, you know, creating a kind of social contract about which ones are allowed and how they're allowed, I think, is, is eminently reasonable. As it should be. Uh, you saw President Biden, of course, after the tragedy in Texas, uh, you know, saying who in the hell would de- ever need an assault weapon except to mm-hmm. kill somebody. Seems logical to me. Seems logical to you. But as we all know, there is a lobby group, uh, especially in the states, uh, that would simply say, no, that's not true at all. Uh, we should be able to, you know, the right to bear arms and all this sort of stuff. And and it's not lost on a lot of us, I guess, Justin, that uh, that as they start burying those little children in Texas, the, the National Rifle Association had their conference just a couple of hundred miles yeah. away from that, basically saying, oh, not the gun, it's not the gun to blame. And, you know, the old people kill people, the guns don't kill people, uh, which is a total load of crap, of course. But yeah. there's an element that believe that, and there's an element in this country that believe that. How do you deal yeah, with that? I mean, it, uh, the, the NRA conference was grotesque. I mean, it, the, the fact that uh, lawmakers straight across the U.S. will not move on a single piece of gun legislation for fear of denunciation or from losing their perfect A rating from the NRA, it, it's, it's almost unfathomable. I will say in this country, we do have a gun lobby. We do have a gun lobby that tends to be oppositional in terms of any measures. But there is a level of reasonableness there that we luckily have in this country that is just not present in the U.S. There's not the big money behind this. There's not the big lobby associations um, behind our, our firearms industry in this country. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, I think it's high time we figure out you know, a level of compromise we can get to. I, you know, last week, I was at the Conservative Party leadership debate in, in Montreal. And there was an interesting moment afterwards. Um, the issue of guns didn't really come up too much on stage. But afterwards, uh, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown scrummed with reporters and was asked about uh, firearms legislation. And he gave a really in- interesting answer. You know, He basically said, you know, I'm mayor of a city that has seen gun violence. And he basically said any conservative who wants to ignore um, the, the, the epidemic of gun violence in this country does so at their own peril. It's something that people in the cities want desperately addressed what he said was we need to get strict on this but we can't do so under the current law he basically said the current law is outdated it's a mess it's bureaucratic it's overly complicated and it's not very effective 
And he basically said, let's start from scratch. Let's start from scratch, but with an eye of actually reducing gun violence, actually restricting gun ownership and figuring out how we can do so while also letting um, law-abiding gun owners you know, kind of go about their daily lives without too much imposition. And frankly, I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, I don't think anybody feels like the current uh, spate of gun laws are the most effective way of getting to this issue. They have been this Byzantine system we've kept bolting new provisions onto for decades. Um, I, I will be curious to see if the Conservative Party maybe takes a cue from that and, and starts going more towards a total overhaul of the system as opposed to this uh, you know, interminable debate about um, you know new measures versus not new measures versus you know delisting individual guns, listing individual guns. I, I I think there's a good argument to be made that maybe we can come to some sort of compromise on what this law should look like uh, that kind of diverges from this 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 rather um, overly complex system we have now. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, because one of the arguments that I've heard, and I'm certainly, uh, I, I know you've heard it with all the research you've done on this, is look at you know this is not going to impact the bad guys, and they're the ones that do most of the shooting, and they're the ones that get illegal guns. So why bother? Which I think is ridiculous. I mean, that's like saying you know there, there are people who are going to speed on the 401. So why even bother putting yeah. a speed limit on there? I mean, uh, you deal with the people that break the laws, and and I, you know, I there are law-abiding people that seem to like firearms, not not my cup of tea, but I mean that's it. And apparently, as of today, they're they're legal, and I get that. But at the same time, you know, the fact that there are people that are going to ignore the law and break the law uh, should not be the bar that we set as to whether or not we're going to introduce legislation. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think fundamentally, um, any weapon that sits in, whether it's even in a locked cabinet, at the home of somebody who one day is law abiding, but a year later has a mental health breakdown or who a year later um, you know, winds up in a relationship where they're the abuser. Um, that gun is suddenly, you know, is suddenly a real threat to the safety of the public, to the safety of the partner, maybe to the safety of, of themselves. And, and that is something that is really hard to solve for. You know, everyone's law-abiding until they're not, right? You know, just because you follow the law one day doesn't mean you're going to follow the next. So, frankly, it is, it is sort of a ludicrous suggestion that there's sort of a, a class of people who will always be law-abiding. Um, that being said, I mean, you know, the argument that smuggled guns are the real part of this problem, I mean, it's, it's correct. Um, you know, according to the chiefs of police of our major cities, the vast, vast, vast majority of guns that are used in in, in gang shootings, in, in drive-by shootings, they are smuggled from the U.S. Uh, the Puerto Rico shooting, like I said, was done with weapons sourced from a, a buyer in the U.S. And figuring out how you capture those is incredibly difficult. The liberals are trying to solve for it by making it harder to enter the country uh, if you've been charged and convicted with with gun rights. Running, um, you know, increasing criminal penalties, uh, expanding investigative capacity on that front. But frankly, those are, those measures are not going to do the job. Uh, and I'm not sure what will. It is an incredibly difficult problem to address. And frankly, um, it will probably not be solved until the U.S. gets serious about gun reform, until it gets serious about gun restrictions. Uh, we're paying for their inability to criminalize all manner of gun ownership, their inability to regulate gun ownership, their inability to install background checks, their inability to do red flag laws, their inability to investigate gun smuggling. Um, and as long as they're indifferent to this problem, we're going to keep paying for it. Well, and I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. I, I'm, I'm sure you sh share my skepticism on that. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as you've got, and this is about money, by the way, as, as you mentioned, you know, getting a little gold star from the uh, National Rifle Association is is not the goal here. It's they get, they they spend millions, if not billions, of dollars supporting these candidates, uh, especially now because there's a midterm election coming up in the United States, and that's that's the power of it right now. Uh, and and money talks, and and you're right until they finally come around to this, and I'm not sure it's going to happen. Uh, they're, they're the feeder system for this, whether they want to admit it or not. And I'm not saying, hey, we're, you know, squeaky clean here. We've got our own mm -hmm. concerns here. Uh, but, but you know, we've got to address this. And it's got to be addressed, uh, as you say, on a, on a national level and on an international level as well. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I can't just make enough distinctions between the National Firearms Association here, um, which is, I think, a much more reasonable and responsible voice for you know, gun owners, and which doesn't even pretend to have that much influence over the Conservative Party of Canada, or at least not to the same degree as the National Rifle Association in the U.S. And just, just quickly, you know, there was a, there was a state senator yesterday who was tweeting in response to why you know why his state had not enacted sensible uh, gun restrictions. And he basically said, we have brought bills forward again and again and again. You name a, a reasonable measure and we've brought a bill forward to do that. They never come up for debate. They never even get to committee. Why? Because the GOP leadership um, knows that if they even vote to bring it to the floor, the National Rifle Association will score them. And scoring means that they consider that action um, a part of the rubric for their, their grading system. So even allowing the bill to come to the floor for a vote will lose your A rating from the National Rifle Association and will mean you're going to have a harder time in the primary season and in a general election. It is a system of dysfunction that means the core tenets of democracy don't work because one lobby organization holds all the cards. Well, the uh, debate will start, I guess, in earnest and in, in, in the House of Commons soon. It's going to be interesting to see you guys. You're going to have to stand up and be counted on this. Uh, Justin, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You betcha. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist, talking about the proposed uh, gun legislation that was introduced yesterday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we know, uh, we're just a couple of days away now from the uh, polls, heading to the polls for the Ontario election. And as the campaigns near their end, uh, a new Ipsos poll done for Global News suggested affordability and health care are top of mind for voters. Sandy Salerno has details. Really popping up with voters right now are issues related to affordability. The poll shows that the leader the majority of people think can help them spend less money at the grocery store or gas station or keep more money in their pocket overall is Doug Ford. There are many other issues surrounding affordability that Ontarians are concerned about, such as uh, lowering energy costs, such as lowering our taxes. And on all of those, it seems to be Doug Ford and the PCs who are in uh, in the advantage there. Ipsos VP Sean Simpson says the other top concern for voters is health care, with Ontarians believing Andrea Horvath and the NDP can tackle that issue best. What voters seem not to care about as much these days heading into the election is the handling of COVID-19, with only 13% of voters saying that issue is important to them. Sandy Salerno, Global News. I would add into that uh, leadership because uh, I think that's awfully important, especially uh, in this last four years that we've seen here, and not just in Ontario, but uh, globally. Uh, when a crisis hits, you want to know that there's somebody there that, that knows what they're talking about and can handle uh, the crisis and, and maintain some sense of stability. Uh, and, and I think that's not being talked about enough. Uh, it is in some circles, though. Uh, it's an interesting op-ed piece that uh, that does address this, by the way. It was in the Hamilton Spectator a little while ago. The author is, uh, well, somebody who you read the spec on a consistent basis, uh, but not on this subject, to which I say, why not? Lorraine Summerfield, of course, is an author and columnist with The Spectator, and uh, her piece is about the upcoming election and some of the questions we should be asking ourselves. So we wanted to get Lorraine on the program to talk about that. Lorraine Summerfield, great to have you back on the program. Thank you. How you doing, Bill? I'm good. Good. Uh, I, you mentioned the, the, some of the feedback that you've you've had uh, uh, since you've uh, written this piece, uh, and, and I guess the overview here, if I could just generalize, is saying, "Hey, you're an automotive expert. Who do you think you are writing about politics? You're also a voter, aren't you?" Oh, absolutely. And motherload predates my automotive career by a few years, at least. Um, actually, my mail. I was braced because whenever I do this, I do it periodically. My, the mail was dozens and dozens and dozens of letters thanking me for writing it. And then a couple who get snarky and tell me to, you know, go write about cars. But interestingly enough, this is about cars as well. When it comes to the sure transportation folder, I probably know more about it than a lot of other general columnists because of what I spend most of my time in. And this, this province, it's terrifying me what they're getting wrong about it. Well, let's talk about the piece, because you address an awful lot of things in the issue. And I, and I just say, when I put a broad stroke and say this is about leadership, it's about leadership about so many different issues. Uh, mm -hmm. And and I guess I kind of anticipated, uh, as uh, Sandy Salerno just mentioned in her, in her report there, Lorraine, we have kind of forgotten about COVID, which I, in one hand surprises me, and on the other hand, it doesn't. Voters seem to have very short memories. And yeah, most of us are back to work now in some way, shape, or form. And, uh, you know, we're spending money. We're traveling now. So... 
well, that was way back in the rearview mirror. But we can't forget that. And we can't forget some of the decisions that were made because they have lifetime implications. Uh, a lot of people died that maybe didn't have to die because of some of these decisions. And, and I know that right now people are saying, well, I don't want to talk about that. Well, we have to talk about that, don't we? I think what a lot of people don't understand, and I, I dabble in science stuff, I don't write about it, but scientists have been seeing this coming for two or three decades now. They were waiting for this COVID. They knew there was going to be emerging pandemics, and now we're going to start to see more and more of them. And we can't be fatigued, but we do have to be armed and warned and make important decisions before stuff goes as sideways as this has. I look at a million people dead in the U.S., and we're talking about you know one of the richest countries in the world. Politically handling these types of problems, we need people who will stick with it and not let us get tired of it, which means not slamming us with it constantly and with terrible information, but being very cautious and careful and making sure we have the information we need to make good decisions, but also leading us. There's too many people looking for help and guidance, and they're just not getting it. And it's not their fault. We, we put people in these places to keep us safe. And when they fail to do that, they have let down the most vulnerable people among us. And frankly, that's how we have to judge how we are as a community. And by the way, if, if I want people to go to the Spec website and, and read the piece. But you're not saying, hey, vote for this party or this party. You're just saying vote. Uh, like get engaged in this sort of thing. I mean, it's yeah. it's apathy. I think is is the biggest concern here that a lot of people have. Uh, that uh, that you know most of us don't vote. In, in, it's even worse in municipal elections. But I'm I'm even hearing this now, Lorraine, and I'm sure you are too. Uh, a lot of people just have this idea that you know what all the polls say he's going to win. So why should I even bother going to the polls? Why should I even vote? Uh, and, no matter and, who you're affiliated with, you know, oh, yeah. you might be a fan of his, yeah. but you're not going to, I know many, I, when I dabbled in politics uh, some years ago at the municipal level, I know many, uh, uh, an incumbent that lost because their supporters just said, ah, oh, you got it in the bag. You don't need my help. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, this is your, this is your one chance to be part of it, isn't it? And I think it's your responsibility to be part of it. And I've been really politically motivated and minded since I was a little kid. I was a creepy, weird little kid. My father was a historical political buff and I adored him. So I've always been immersed in this. My sisters are like, you're crazy. But when I, I understand why people look at, they go, I don't like politics. And it does. If you look at it like a monolith, it's this big wall. So what I say to them, they'll say, I can't be bothered. I don't want to do it. I'll say, please pick one issue at whichever level of government you're talking about at the moment, pick one issue that they are responsible for that matters to you. It might be child care, it might be senior care, it might be um, environment and garbage pickup, depending on the level of government. But I ask them, I say, instead of looking at the whole thing and tackling it, pick one thing in your community that matters to you, find out who's responsible for that, and then get all the information you can, and then make a vote base there because issues are hooked into other issues. So when someone says, that'll make a one issue voter, oh my God, that will make a voter. <laughs> like I'll take it. So just something that matters to you, personalize it, find out something you care about and start to learn about that one thing. Don't think you have to learn about the history of everything that's ever happened. You'll eventually get there when you find an interest, but please impact, find something that impacts you so that you have a say in how this is resolved and how it's going to be carried forward. If it matters to you, vote on it. Well, let's let's pick on because you touched on it in, in the op-ed piece. Uh, let's talk about roads and automobiles and and you know this government's commitment first of all to building highways, uh, and notwithstanding the environmental concerns. And the other one about this all of a sudden this you know r conversion on the road to Damascus that all of a sudden EVs are the the bee's <laughs> knees as far as they're concerned. Uh, this is the same guy that tore all the charging stations out and said you're not getting the rebates. I'm not going to give money to rich people to buy cars. Where would we be if he hadn't done that? Would we be further along that road, excuse the bad pun, uh, towards oh. moving to EVs and more environmentally conscious? I, I say yes. It was incredibly difficult to watch that happen for those of us in the industry because we had Ontario finally picking it up. It's like we're going to get more chargers. He tore out um, new builds requiring to rough in for electric charging stations. Mm -hmm. Think about that. All those condos being built, everything being built, they were supposed to have roughed in stuff already there which is the way forward because folks whether you like it or not you're going to be driving an electric car in the future like you are and yep. every manufacturer has gone there we're going there so to destroy nearly 800 clean energy projects which possibly has cost them a battery plant now in windsor i'm hearing um, that is the height of 
absolutely poor judgment. And what I really don't like, this is the scary part to me about Doug Ford. And I was raised a conservative folks. I did not, you know, I'm not some, anyway, I know a lot about, I know a lot about all the parties across Canada. What bothers me is he is so impulsive and he makes decisions that I find are not based on a deep knowledge. I don't know if it's because he doesn't have that around him. I don't care if it's because he doesn't care. But I get worried when I see a very impulsive leader who cares that people like him and will do what he takes to, to swerve to meet those goals. We need very reliable people who actually have a long-term outlook, even beyond when they're in office. And we become people who they get elected and all they want to do is make sure they get elected again. We don't need that. There doesn't seem to be a lot of foresight going on. And when I have a leader who is incurious, I, I feel like he doesn't want to know very much. I look at the flip-flops in the transportation industry. He goes from insulting people and then saying he's proud to rip up energy contracts. Now we're losing a massive, massive one because of it. And the Ring of Fire mine in far northern Ontario, this is not a done deal, folks. There are so many implications. And he just wants to get the stuff out of the ground. He's like a little kid in his playroom, and he's the boss. And he's, the impulsivity of how decisions are being made by this government should worry all of us. I have a friend of mine who uh, works in Toronto. He's a political consultant. And by the way, he's a conservative, uh, both federally and provincially. And he, he does a lot of work with these people. And he told me, he said, the day that Doug Ford changed was when the Raptors had their victory celebration after they won the NBA championship. And remember, he got booed by that crowd yeah. of, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people showed up that day. And you yeah. could just see, he was like the emperor had no clothes. He thought everybody loved him because the people around him kept saying that. And this is this is this guy telling me, this conservative uh, uh, he, no. guy telling me all these stories. And he says, he says I think he made up his mind right there that I, I, I want people to love me. I'm going to do what I need to do to get them to love me. And he, But this group, and this group, he's trying to please everybody at the same time. It's, and you, you can't do that. That's not being a leader. And there's, Toronto Life has an article about their family, which is really, really fascinating because it talks about the dynamics of how these kids were raised. Because Rob, um, he obviously wanted everyone to like him, and most people did. He looked like he was fun, a little bit too much fun, yeah. probably. And, you know, sorry, it's gone. But it's like Doug doesn't have his brother's charm, I guess is the word. I don't know what it is. But you're a leader. Your job is not to be liked, it's to be respected. Absolutely. It's a set a course and stay with it and change when it makes sense to change. Not when you put up a weather balloon and see, oh, too many people don't like that. I'm not going to do that again. And we've seen that repeatedly. I'm closing playgrounds. Oh, that pissed everyone off. Okay, open them. On and on and on. This is not how, how you set laws. It's not how you move forward. When he doesn't like the law, he rams an MZO through and changes the law. And then when he doesn't like that law, he, he breaks it anyway with campaigning things. So we're seeing somebody who is too erratic and too hell-bent on being nice, plus rewarding all his developer buddies, that National Observer article. Everyone has to read that. It was brilliant. You need to follow, follow the money. Sounds like cliche, but do it. Mm-hmm. We need somebody who is not beholden to all these people. And that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard myself say because they're all beholden to somebody. I look at the crap going on in Flamborough Grand Book. Grandpa, what are they doing ripping up there? They're destroying farmland. We're coming into a global food crisis. Could people please understand and go back to their parents' generation and know what that looks like and realize the risk of permanently losing some of the best farmland in Canada, the world? We're, we're out of our minds. Well, and that's the example. I just, uh, we have family up in Barrie, so I'm, I travel the 400 from time to time. And and you know, I think you and I have talked about this in the past, one of the most picturesque and beautiful uh, and proud things that I ever see is driving up uh, the 400 right by Highway 9 and the Holland Marsh. Yeah. As Holland far Marsh as you can gorgeous. see on either side, it's yeah. it, the richest soil. It's uh, Other co- countries in the world are, are salivating to have something like that. Oh, yeah. And this Bradford bypass that he has now committed, that he says, I'm going to build this, yeah. is going to have a negative impact on the water table that feeds that. Now, I'm not a tree hugger. I'm, I'm very concerned about the environment, uh, and I like to eat. Uh, and, you know, we've got this fabulous garden right there in front of us. And he says, well, yeah, but these people need a highway. They need a road. They need a bypass. Yeah, they don't. The- if you look every other, this the talk of this bypass has been going on forever. They also have the empty 407 sitting there. Yeah. Why are they not working out deals? He, I mean, he forgave them a billion dollars over the, over the COVID thing. He let this big 
private company off the hook for a billion dollars. He said, don't worry about it, guys. That's your billion dollars and mine. Handing back license tag renewals for two years, that's $2 billion. Nobody asked for that, by the way. Drivers should be paying that. And going forward, it's a billion a year. How's he replacing that? He throws around billions of dollars like I throw around confetti at a wedding. I don't understand. This is not responsible. And everyone keeps talking about conservatives being such responsible you know, economists and stuff. People, this is not responsible. If you look at the actual numbers, they'll, they'll, be, they'll rip this apart in years to come and find out massive holes. I don't know. You got your license renewal back. Did the number make any sense to you? No one no. else I know it made sense. I, I had a friend way, up can, north. He, yeah, go ahead. He pays 60 bucks a year. He's got a little fee. He got back $810. I know him. He showed me the slip that he gave to the charity up there that he supports. None of these numbers make sense. They're random. I can't wait till but, they do the inquiry. But you just threw something on this. I, I got I to get a comment from you on this, and I know it's a little bit off topic, but no, it isn't because it goes to those revenue things. He made a big deal about the fact that, you know, I don't have to pay for my sticker anymore. Here's your rebate check bill. Uh, we love you to pieces, and I th- that's wonderful. I, I, I will bet you right now, Lori, 99% of the people don't know you still have to get a license sticker every year. You just don't pay for I've it. I've been on Twitter. Well, yeah, I've been on how Twitter. The hell, how, how the yeah. hell do you do that? In other words, well, there'll be no notices. Because I, I know somebody that just about got a ticket. Well, they they got yes. they talked the officer out. He says, yeah, you need yeah. to get one. I said, nobody's. Oh, yes. The government didn't say that. No, you have to go online and renew anyway. You can do it every yeah. two years, not one. But you also, you will not get a reminder in the mail for your health card or for your driver's license anymore or your sticker. No more mailed reminders. You have to go and opt in on the government website to get reminders. So I'm telling you now, you could carting around an expired license they started they softly quietly did this in the fall so you're not getting reminders how hard is that every five years to get a note saying re-up your health card or your license no we've removed that so again and they say well it's online that's better we are dismissing a big part of the segment of our population who need more help with this not less and i i find it um cruel i find it really cruel to do this now if, if you're a caretaker for older people you now have something else on your plate that you have to add to that. So telling me, oh, they have younger people in their lives that have internet, they'll do it for them. I'm sorry, when you're one of those people, that's something else now again that you have to keep track of. This is not a government that is thinking very much about anyone but themselves. Uh, and if you disagree with everything Lorraine and I are saying, go out and vote. <laughs> and, and, and Go ahead, just vote, Peace. okay, on Thursday. <laughs> Uh, it's a great piece. It's thought-provoking, and I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about it again. As always, Lorraine, take care of yourself, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You too. Thanks so much. Take care. Lorraine Summerfield, of course, author and columnist. And uh, you can go on the spec webpage, and uh, that op-ed piece is there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.